Hello, listeners. This is Chris Miller, co-host of your all-time favorite podcast, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you like what you hear and you want to lend your support, please go to patreon.com slash trrpod. And for as little as $1 a month, you can receive early access to new episodes as well as exclusive bonus content. That's right, it's a dollar. Come on, you have that much money right now in that weird little gap between your driver's seat and your center console. It's probably rattling around in the dryer right now. If you have a dog, there's a good chance that it has eaten that much change at least once in its life. So, for your beloved pet's sake, consider going to patreon.com slash trrpod and giving us that dollar instead. Your dog will thank you, and so will I. And now, on with the show. all get up to this weekend well mine wasn't really this weekend because yeah i've been working and you know being a bartender but yeah uh last week uh sat down at a bar i know don't don't be shocked that i did that and uh and i had a conversation uh with a friend of mine i was at the take a break if uh, nobody's been uh 39th and Penn, one of my favorite dive bars in the cities in the city uh shout out to earl stone oh, I know my it. main I man my main man the bartender yeah. earl uh tell him chris sent you but uh you know, as, as we're not having, even paying us to advertise for <laughs> yeah, them. I right? love it. This is free. Mm-hmm. And as I'm talking to Earl, it, it was middle of the week, kind of late. You know, we were just shooting the shit. And uh, the girl next to me starts talking. And the first thing I noticed, not that this was a very attractive young blonde lady. It's that she had the single most pronounced Scottish accent I've ever heard. It sounded like Merida from the, the, the Disney flick. I don't remember what it was called. So she was cute and she had a Scottish accent. And all I could think of. Well, now I can't stand up. All I could think of was Rob's dad. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> fuck off. I'm, it was just, it was a like. A 69-year-old man it popped was into like, your head. But it was like nice. in Shut in up. the Bugs Bunny cartoons whenever they're on the island and they like, turn into a hamburger and hot dog. Her face just turned into the burn. <laughs> no. I hate it. Just, I hate it so just much. Just out of respect. I Out of respect for your father. I did not pursue this in any way. I, okay. well, at least I, you didn't have to think of baseball. Here's the thing: <laughs> I, we I, were talking about baseball, and it made it, even, it it made it all the more difficult. Okay, here's the thing. Frankly, look, I appreciate it. I do. It's I a really respect do. thing. I I, I I appreciate that, but oh God, the, and it's not just the respect for your father. It is a a profound sense of national pride that I feel because I know Rob, you. You at least claim to uh, have Scottish descent. Well, I have something that I've been saving for a while. I have an official proclamation of Scottish lordship. Oh, my God. I bought property in Scotland. (laughs) Remember when we got those? Whenever we got our our stimmies and I said I was going to buy something real stupid? (laughs) So you're a true blue island laird. I am a laird. I own not only a plot of land... They planted a tree. <laughs> well, okay, now well, I own, I own like seven and a half square feet of Scotland. Now, now, now <laughs> so it, many questions, so many questions. It's I, a, the, in Wigstonshire, Scotland, part of a Merklin or a eight ounceland, but uh, one is mine. So that's right, fellas. Uh. Okay, and, first, and like I know that Rob has claimed to have been Scottish, but my question to you, Rob, is this: 
Do you have such a certificate? Is this man, this really <laughs> fucks up the power dynamic between <laughs> us. It really does. I'm Remember this, this when I said all. I was going to set aside a yeah. small amount of money to buy something profoundly stupid? Yeah. I, I this I recall, yeah. I, I even bought the official raised seal. I love it. Like just, this <laughs> I got to say <laughs> I got to say it's it's in like old timey script. The paper is aged and everything. Oh, I have I have the official I, plot number. I've looked it up. <laughs> I have I have questions. When, when okay, here's the, the first thing. being the first being do you are is Braveheart now required viewing once a year? Those are my people. <laughs> no, but Trent, that's, those you know no, no, that's no. my Braveheart's that's my not heritage. Your no, fuck not you. your costume. Fuck you. Braveheart's not your people. Train spotting is your people. <laughs> <laughs> it is that part of Scotland. Okay. Now, 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 well, now, you can take the now, boy out now, of Scotland, but you can't take the needle out of his arm. Now, now the next question is: Is does it come with a complimentary sheep and pair of muck boots? I'm upset again. <laughs> well, now I only eat fried food. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you're catching up with the national pastime. It's not the Highland Games. It's it's just deep frying everything and putting it in curry sauce. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I am the newly servile Rob North. And I am his Lord Chris Miller. It's Laird. <laughs> Shut up. I, I could you're going to have the paper at least too, like, right. I had the option. <laughs> Are you going to become I, like? Are you become like I don't think you're, I don't think you're allowed to yell if you're a surf. I oh, shit. <laughs> <sighs> I am Kyle Graper, and I am Michael Ornette, your padre. Okay, I are Chris. Are you going before we move on? Chris, are you going to become like those Scottish entertainers who would tour Scotland but sing about being far away from Scotland? <laughs> Like they're up on stage, and like, I'm far away, and they're just like they're ten just, miles from where they grew up. Right, still I mean, in the you Highlands. Can, you can only go so yeah. far. Wait it's a like, second. Wait a second. He just owned you with his accent. I now that you're a laird, the lands of home. You're singing in fucking Inverness. Calm down. Now that you're a laird, Mr. Miller. Problem is, what's here, Scott Jackson? The, old, the thing is now, though, Scottish when, when we do all eventually take our big podcast field trip to the homeland and. Go from I'm going to go Land's visit end, my tree from Lands End to John O'Groats. We're going to have to make a detour to find your. <laughs> We're going to find patch. the tree <laughs> and, and and Laird. I'm going to pee on your tree. Well, I think we all are. I de- oh, I'm just going to do it first, or I guess technically I should do it last. Oh, we're going to give it the old Highland christening in case any dogs oh, well, come by, then well, they know it's mine well, because I was per- the last one. I am the Padre. Perhaps I should do it first because I'm I'm at least one of the estates. <laughs> <laughs> so. But because I do own that, I'm going to build a castle. It's going to be really small, but it's going to be super tall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like those assholes who built the new hotels in New York City? Uh, just straight oh, up. Yeah. And, then, and, and then the in the middle of it, there's going to be a large. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's actually get that of the episode because we could get lost in talking about Chris's Scottish poll forever. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting. I've been waiting for this. Dude, you've been sitting on this for a while. Months. You've been sitting on this. This for is a the while. culmination. Like this. This just proves that the one thing I learned over over quarantine was patience. Mm. <laughs> so today we are going into part four, the final chapter of our story on the Emperor Justinian. Yeah, this is the lighthearted version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is going to be a lot less dark than the last two episodes. Thank God, I mean, for my own sanity. Uh, this one was a little more fun to research. 
Um, yeah, a bunch of yeah. failed military conquests and the crumbling of half of an empire. And turd cutters. Then the other half of the empire. So, having made it through an apocalyptic climate disaster and a lethal plague pandemic that nearly took his life, Justinian, emperor of the Byzantine Empire, was surely feeling pretty knocked around by this point. And like I said, today we're going to move away from the sweeping events of the 530s and the 540s and focus back in on the life of the man himself during the second half of his time in power. And this time wouldn't be easy for the Empire or for its Emperor. It became abundantly clear that something with Justinian definitely wasn't right. And the inner circle around him would see that very clearly. What was also clear is that Justinian's actions and personality would shape the fate of the Byzantine Empire both in the short term and for centuries after. So before we proceed, as always, we want to give honor to our sources. So we have Justinian the Great, Life and Legacy of the Byzantine's Greatest Emperor by Charles Rivers, Lost to the West, the Forgotten Byzantine Empire that Rescued Western Civilization by Lars Brownworth, The Glittering Horn, Memoirs of the Court of Justinian by Pearson Dixon, Justinian's Flea by William Rosen, Volume 4 of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by no less than Edward Gibbon himself, and then some contemporary sources. We have The Chronicle by John Malalas, The Ecclesiastical History by Evagrius Scholasticus, and the thing we're going to go the heaviest into today, which is The Secret History by Procopius. So gentlemen, any points of order? Anything for the good of the podcast before we get into the final part of our story? I think we're good. I mean, we covered an awful lot in the last one. Yeah, these big yeah, sweeping events. Yeah. I did. I do want to add two uh, two sources that I used on all of these that uh, I had neglected to mention before, only oh, because I do. forgot what they were. Uh, it's actually two podcasts. Uh, the first one is the History Unplugged podcast from mm-hmm. Robin Pearson. Uh, big fan of that one. Very very approachable, and he uses a lot of really interesting guests who have a lot of podcasts of their own. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of information there. Uh, and then I have the In Our Time podcast from Melvin Bragg of the BBC Four. So definitely check those out. You can find those. Uh, I got them on Google, but you can find them wherever your podcasts are to be found. I also have two recommendations to make. I didn't use them as official sources for my research, but I've come across them. If you're interested at all in exploring further the history of the Byzantine Empire, as I'm sure some of you are, because I know we got some history nerds, both at this table and out there listening, I would like to recommend uh, the YouTube channel Flashpoint History. Um, the, the guy who creates it, is a, I believe he's a Canadian history teacher, and he goes through, uh, in about 25 to 30 minute spurts, different periods of Byzantine history. He also covers a whole bunch of other topics, including he's, like... He's not a professor, though. He's like a secondary education I believe teacher. he's a high school teacher. Yeah, it's Because you know the channel I'm talking about. Yeah. But he, 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 it's excellent. It's great mm-hmm. stuff. And he has episodes that are chopped into, like, like I said, 25 or 30 minute chunks the cover the history of the Byzantine Empire. It picks up a little the story picks up a little after the end of Justinian's life. But it does go through the final decline and fall of the Byzantine Empire. And then what he also does is he puts together compilations of these episodes. So you can listen to it in like these two and a half hour chunks if you have more time on your hands. I would also uh, and he also covers like the Muslim wars in Spain, the Muslim conquests in North Africa, all sorts of other topics. Very interesting stuff. I'd also like to recommend the uh, Byzantium episode of the Fall of Civilizations podcast. Uh, it's by a, uh, a British man. This is a long episode. Uh, it's probably three and a half hours long, but it is extensive. And it really does go into wider Byzantine history, so I can't recommend it enough. So, uh, shall we begin, gentlemen? Let her rip, baby. 
So let's pick up not with the end of the Great Plague that struck the Byzantine Empire and the rest of Europe, the Mediterranean, and the Middle East, but with the end of one specific but, but with one specific point, let's cast ourselves back to the end of 542 AD. There were still several years ahead of plague ravaging the Byzantine Empire and Constantinople specifically, but the point we're going to is when Justinian knew he was going to survive having the plague. We already discussed that most people who survived the bubonic plague, the quote-unquote lucky minority, would bear the scars for the rest of their lives. Wicked whorl scarring was left on the skin where the bubos had developed, and oftentimes there would be collections of scarring on the extremities where necrosis had taken hold, often leaving the survivors with withered fingers, toes, noses, ears, and genitals, and leaving nerve damage, unable to feel with these digits or other sensory damages that could include a loss of smell or sexual dysfunction. Then there was the deeper damage underneath the skin. The massive buboes filled with necrotic pus broke down muscle and joint tissue in the areas they appeared most in, around the neck, armpits, and groin. This lost tissue couldn't be restored with any medical procedures at the time, and could leave survivors with trouble walking, issues raising their arms up, a lack of mobility in their limbs, lost strength or muscle tone, nerve damage, and oftentimes with their heads canted at odd angles. You could very easily spot plague survivors in this time. So they looked like a slipknot guitarist. You could yeah. very easily spot one of them because he was the guy sitting on the plinth that they're walking around the city at all of the parades. Yeah. And, and by the way, guys, this is the lightest episode that we're probably mm. going to deal with. There is yeah. one thing I do want to... Well, this is just kind of a revisiting right. to well, kind of paint the picture of yeah. what Justinian just but went this, through. One thing that bears mentioning is that <laughs> I didn't know, because I, I know about the Black Plague, I know about the loss of life, I know about ring around the rosy and plague doctors and all that and just how contagious it was but i didn't realize how bad it was for the survivors Mm -hmm. i didn't realize that the effects like the after effects were so bad like we said in the last episode if the plague didn't kill you immediately and you survived it chances were you weren't gonna long live as long as you would have otherwise yeah like the lasting effects of this and it it infected more than half of the people in the city and it killed almost 60 percent of them Mm -hmm. So there's well, 40% of the More than infected. 60%. Yeah. All told, between the three variants, it had a mortality rate overall of nearly 70%. So you have 30% of the people that were infected up walking around gruesomely disfigured. Mm-hmm. Although, keep in mind, in this time period, unless you were the landed wealthy who didn't leave the house... You were not the everyone healthiest. Was, everyone yeah. was disfigured. Yeah, you were because not the that, healthiest looking. When that ox cart way. rolled over your leg when you were seven, it didn't heal the right way. So you had a hobble. Your face yeah. has pox scars and... People didn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone was a little rough. Every everybody looked like the like the, all the extras in Game of Thrones is what you're saying. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Without a very expensive makeup team mm-hmm. and a and the Merkin budget to beat the band. The one thing I did like about Game of Thrones and all these period pieces is that they keep casting the same looking like weird looking old British men. <laughs> like, hey, these, it's good to have a gig. It's, it's nice just to know these, they're like, working. Yeah, like legitimately exactly. unhealthy looking people. It's like <laughs> Like, all right, baby, let's stack this paper. You got to love a dude with big black circles under his eyes and an Adam's apple you could land a Cessna on. And every time that show runs somewhere, there's a check coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> May not be the biggest check, but background there's a check. extras don't get paid for that. He, he's not getting residuals. He's not. He's not yeah. seeing a nickel every time they <laughs> they show all I, of it. However, I promise you, awards. Yeah, I'm definitely not getting checks for mine hundred today. I tell you that. Much. <laughs> but yeah, but the plague could scar you in very interesting and specific ways. And the 60 year old Justinian was no exception. It said that he walked with a limp for the rest of his life, and it seemed as though the strength had been sapped from his limbs. Even though no note is made of any loss of mobility in his arms, he could still use them. But it seemed like he was a little more feeble. 
Uh, he also went through the rest of his life with his head constantly cocked a little to the left due to a nasty bubo on his neck, which also left a wicked scar on his throat. In addition, it said that the once handsome and stocky emperor had lost his good looks with dark circles under his eyes, sagging jowls, and blotchy skin becoming his new daily reality. He now looks like Procopius said he did forever. Yes. He also began to lose his hair and beard in patches and had developed a constant tremor in his hands. Uh, now, up to this point, even to the age of 60, it's said that he had remained physically fit and healthy due to an active life and one lived with moderation, always conscious of excess in terms of food and drink. Now that fitness was gone. Now, what was far, far worse, though, was the toll that the disease had taken on his mind. We mentioned last time how the high fevers brought on by the plague can cause significant brain damage if they're ongoing, and it soon became clear that even though his body, however scarred, had survived the disease, Justinian's old personality had not. He showed immediate signs of irritability and angry outbursts that were apparently contrary to his previous nature. He became paranoid, seeing enemies and plots everywhere, and developed a habit of mumbling and talking to himself constantly. He seemed like he couldn't concentrate. He couldn't sit still, and he would often get up and wander the room during meetings or when holding court. He would snap at people or roll his eyes when they spoke. He would lash out at guards, servants, and courtiers, both verbally and physically, which was all contrary to his old nature. It's just terrifying to think that a head of state would be, like, lashing out at people and acting erratically. Yeah, just what's kind that of like? Wandering off in important moments and staring directly into an eclipse and then drawing little sharpie lines on a map of a hurricane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what the difference is? The scars? Um, Justinian had <laughs> kind of had an excuse. He survived a plague that would kill almost any man. Yeah, in other situations, it's 30 years of yellow jacket abuse. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just blasted greenies for 30 years. I, 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 all I'm going to say is that I don't think that the leader you're talking about ended up with all that over bone spurs. <laughs> so I was talking about Lincoln yeah. I don't know what the fuck yeah. <laughs> I just think Justinian needed a Snickers uh, Lincoln America's straightest gay president so now we all know that Justinian was capable of cruelty based on his actions after the Nika riots and how he treated his population during the twin great disasters but it had always been a quiet and calm cruelty very measured now he would get up, wandering the halls at night, muttering to himself. He even became quicker to call for the execution of people who displeased him, and now his underlings would, instead of talking him out of it, just say that it had been done and rely on his break with reality to help slip the act past without him noticing that they actually hadn't done it. Jesus Christ, it's literally the Trump administration. <laughs> also, <laughs> Holy the, fuck. Also, oh yeah, we totally did it. Yeah, yeah we did it. Okay. I was also going to go with the Stalin administration. That's true. Yeah. There's something very Stalin about all this. Yeah, so. I mean, there were, there were some, like, odd parallels, but, like, yeah. no, that's exactly what happened in the Stalin administration. Right. Like, the guy died and nobody wanted to touch him. Right. <laughs> Death of Stalin. Great no, movie. Nobody would go into the room. <laughs> Death of Stalin's a great movie. It's so good. Uh, but I, I was, I was going to say, I have to wonder, though, how much of it was brain damage from the plague fever and how much of it was possibly just him going into some sort of breakdown mode over everything going on? Well, I Because eventually, because even if you are kind of cruel to your population, at what point do you start to worry that the ship of state is headed towards the rocks? This is one of the things that you see over and over and over again. And in, actually, I was just having a conversation with someone um, over this 
Hey, look at Caligula. Mm-hmm. When Caligula, Caligula was always had nuts. this great disease. He 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 was actually a great leader for a time, and then he had a disease. He had, mm-hmm. he had this heavy fever and this virus treated him with mercury. Well, that didn't help. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and that's the thing we, is they we, don't go we, into we, they don't go into detail about what kind of cures, and that's cures and big freaking air I don't think the problem with Caligula is that they treated him with mercury. I think it's that they didn't treat him with lithium. Like, he was always nuts. But, it's like, well, well, I mean, Nero had a pretty rough go, but he was an excellent fiddle player. Like, no, he was just always, a, he was always fucking crazy. Well, well no, actually, uh, there, there are actually document, uh, documents that uh, Josephus actually documented part of uh, Caligula's reign. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they said throughout the empire was that he was... He was a pretty good leader, and then but he was all also of a sudden so he inbred gets this that he could barely hold yeah. it. Like, but he also gets this great disease, and then at that point he just goes off the rails. Yeah. But we've That's also what, seen, that was the comparison we've that also, I was making. His disease yeah. could also have been that he was just lousy with cash. Yeah. Well, that's right. the thing too. Is is history has shown us so many examples of both people coming down with some kind of disease, be it plague or whatever, right. that causes brain damage, and they have a psychotic break as a result. But we've also seen plenty of people throughout history who have had a psychotic break as a result of the pressure of power. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, I mean, I ask the if question... anybody does I also get... don't mean to ask the question as, is it an either-or kind of thing? I don't right. think these two things are mutually oh, exclusive no, no. for right. Justin. If anybody earned, like, the total collapse of their psyche, at this point, it's got to be mm-hmm. Justinian. Mm-hmm. As, right. as we talked about, he was the guy in charge of, of the largest empire in the known world at the time. Well, no, in the entire world, like even we know now, exactly. like in the entire world, yeah. who had the worst time to be alive ever, twice, twice, in a decade, right? No yeah, time back, between the two, back to back. No time between right. the two. You wrap up one with the other. Yeah, right. exactly. So now that Justinian's personality was becoming more and more disagreeable, and he was becoming much harder to deal with on the daily, even for those who were closest to him, this is where I want to bring in Procopius. Now, we've referenced him a lot in this series, and to refresh your memories, Procopius was one of Justinian's court historians, basically, following the Greco-Roman tradition of having someone around, of someone of learning around specifically, uh, outside of religious circles, to chronicle the great works of your regime and take them down for posterity, with you being the one to pay them, so they work to make you look good. Procopius was from Palestine, and all we really know is that he was born around 500, and was either educated at the Academy of Alexandria or in Constantinople itself, much like Justinian was. He became an advisor to the young standout general Belisarius, and basically followed him around until Procopius was noticed by the emperor for his smarts and his writing talents. He was given a spot in the Byzantine Senate and became a fixture of Justinian's court. And he was soon commissioned to be that court chronicler and wrote many manuscripts, some big, most small, but the ones that stood out were three in particular. The first two... One of them was the Wars of Justinian, in which Procopius wrote of the emperor's goal of reuniting the lost lands of Rome back under the imperial banner, and the Buildings, which chronicled the great physical works of Justinian's regime, from the fortifying of certain cities to the bridging of various rivers to, of course, the construction of the massive church of Hagia Sophia, which still stands today. Now, the Wars is surprisingly candid, talking openly about military setbacks, problems with supply, plague outbreaks among the field armies, mutinous garrisons, giving most of the credit to generals rather than, uh, rather than the, it's, rather than to Justinian himself. And I, and I think even though Justinian was the one commissioning this work, he let all of this fly because I think there's a part of him that gets that 
I won, even in the face of adversity and with a bunch of setbacks, with help, carries a much stronger and more honest message than all I do is win. With me, there's nothing but winning. No one can do it but me. With me, you'll be sick of winning. And will lead future historians to have a much more favorable view of the life and works of the man. The and the bill- I, Sophia, it's huge. It's huge. It's got my <laughs> name on it. It's got my name on it. It'll be here in 2,000 years. It would be, be pretty huge. fucking funny if it had yeah. his name on it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, it, uh, if, if you go to the Hagia Sophia, apparently there's a bunch of uh, scratched uh, graffiti in uh, uh, Norwegian runic script hmm. uh, from a bunch of like bored Varangian guards who were standing around. Olaf was here? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's not that far off. So it, it's that's that just little, a little aside. Who was the little guy in World War II? Little head they drew. He was like peeking over. To oh, Kilroy. Like, Kilroy. Kilroy. It was like yeah. Kilroy, but he just had like a big, like braided mustache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, now the buildings is simply an absolute blowjob to Justinian's regime because how could it not be? You know, here's a bunch of cool shit I built for the people. Is the theme of the whole book. Uh, what both of these works contains is a very flattering portrait of Justinian and Theodora, uh, painting them as pious, moderate, generous, forthright in their intentions charitable, and having the motivation of purely looking out for the best interests of the Byzantine people, building defenses for their safety and churches for their piety. But there was another book, one we've already referenced and pulled quotes from for this story. Now, no one really knows for sure when he wrote it or exactly what his plans were for its release or even if it was supposed to be released. Some say that Procopius wrote this purely as a sort of therapeutic outlet, a way to get the let out of on frustrating people who made his life difficult. A journal. Now, others think he wrote it as an insurance policy to be released in the event of his death at the hands of Justinian or some of his fellow courtiers, or perhaps to defend him in the case of an overthrow of Justinian's government. A way of saying, hey, see, I actually hated these guys. I'm not really a part of that court. Please don't kill me. The secret history never appeared during Procopius's lifetime, and where the document went and how it ended up, up where it ended up, after its original writing is a mystery, as it isn't recorded as having turned up until well into the 12th century in the Vatican Library, no less. And no one actually published it until 1623. Now, in the secret history, Procopius writes in the introduction, quote, It will now be my duty, in this part of my history, to tell you what has hitherto remained untold, and to state the real motives and origins of the actions which I have already recounted. But when undertaking this new task, how painful and hard will it be to be obliged to falter and contradict myself as to what I have said previously about the lives of Justinian and Theodora. I shall have the courage not to shrink from this important work, because my story will not lack witnesses. For the men of today, who are best informed witnesses of these facts, will hand on trustworthy testimony of their truth to posterity. I doubted whether it would be right to hand down these events to posterity, for the wickedest actions had better remain unknown to future times then come to the ears of tyrants and be imitated by them. For most rulers are easily led by lack of knowledge into imitating the evil deeds of their predecessors and finding their easiest plan to walk in the evil ways of their forefathers. End quote. It's every former Trump AIDS memoir that's being published right <laughs> it's now. It's every former presidential AIDS memoir. Yeah, so it doesn't matter fair. who it was. Uh, they, yeah, they, it's they, been that well, way the, mooch, the mooch never would have wrote that. I, I love that guy. He was my favorite character yeah, he, from season two. Yeah, he just moved straight to podcasts. He's a man. He's a man of the future. I mean, that, the that was definitely that was definitely an Omarosa thing. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's tough to write a book on eleven days of material. <laughs> now, the secret history paints a very different picture of Justinian and his court than in Procopius's other works. 
The Emperor is painted as an absolute monster, a tyrant through and through, at once cunning as a fox, but also profoundly stupid, and an exemplar of the wickedness that can come with absolute power. Justinian is said by Procopius to be outwardly friendly and quite accessible, as far as emperors go, but utterly incompetent, vain, and deeply cruel and vengeful against slights both real and imagined, but at the same time willing to roll over and show his belly to anyone whom he felt presented a real threat to him. Theodora is portrayed as nothing short of a devilish whore, full of pure vulgarity and insatiable lust, coupled with a cold-blooded ambition and self-interest, a mean-spirited nature, an out-and-out shrewishness, bossing around her husband, and never afraid to emasculate anyone she could. If anything, that makes me think she's more cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it... Hey, but we're probably a little different than your average Byzantine consumer. That's oh, correct. But like, except that from what I heard, when she was on stage, she fucked a swan. Well, hold on. <laughs> Allegedly, we're getting to that. Uh, well, Procopius does seem quite preoccupied with her previous line of work and spends a lot of time talking about her burlesque days, including the description of the following act portraying Leda, the mythical queen of right. Sparta. Quote: Often, even in the theater, in the sight of all the people. She removed her costume and stood nude in their midst, except for a girdle about the groin. Not that she was abashed at revealing that, too, to the audience. But because there was a law against appearing altogether naked on the stage, without at least this much of a fig leaf. Covered thus with a ribbon, she would sink down to the stage floor and recline on her back. Slaves to whom the duty was trusted would then scatter grains of barley from above into the calyx of this passion flower, whence geese... Trained for the purpose, would next pick the grains <laughs> one by one with their bills and eat. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hang on. Hey, these are these are highly trained grain eating geese. Wait a, wait a fucking minute here. <laughs> Procopius is claiming that she made a living off of getting on stage in front of people, dropping down on stage, putting barley in her. In her, in her Mostly my thing cave is and having geese come out on stage and, and eat the barley. This my, is the thing that gets me about this is not his claims. It's that he only believes that a geese will eat things on the ground when it's part of a crack team of highly trained <laughs> swans. Like that's what gets me about this it. Is, like, well, no, this is Richard Gear with the gerbil. Oh god, this is nah, what that is. I, I, Interspecies I, I, erotica, you, fucko. <laughs> uh, uh, Kevin Smith, we're still looking for you, yeah. buddy. Um, at the same time, I would argue we are also dealing in a time period where the whole ping pong ball oh yeah thing is a thing. Tijuana donkey show, yeah. all of that. Yeah, you don't have it's, to go to Tijuana for a ping pong. Ball. No, you don't. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's the thing is it's very obvious that there is a part of Procopius that is very very misogynist. I mean, the dude clearly does not like powerful women. He goes. He doesn't on... really like powerful anyone. Yeah. Well, he goes on to write of how, with Theodora's influence, Justinian began to move away from his accessible ways and became imperious beyond belief, drowning in his own self-importance, treating the highest of senators and ministers like slaves, including the following about Theodora herself. Quote, Not even the government officials could approach the empress without expending much time and effort. They were treated like servants and kept waiting in a small stuffy room for an endless time. After many days, some of them might at least uh, might at last be summoned, but going into her presence in great fear, they very quickly departed. 
They simply showed their respect by lying face down and touching the instep of each of her feet with their lips. There was no opportunity to speak or to make any request unless she told them to do so. The government officials had sunk into a slavish condition, and she was their slave instructor. End quote. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Freud, paging Dr. Freud. <laughs> well, they, they, Tell they, me they, about they, your they, mother. What, what, what it kind of made me think of is some of the writings from some of the other podcasts that we've done when it came to speaking of Catherine the Great. Oh, boy. <laughs> we got there. Ooh. Well, I mean, it, 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 yeah, it, no, it was. It, it, it was kind of we we joke about we joke about the horse sex yeah. thing. And, and, and well, of but course, I, think, I had to make yeah. the reference, but but, but that's <laughs> had the, to. Yeah, I wanted but, to. I but, totally wanted. But I mean, to. this right is probably this. the most but, but this is, the most like pertinent time this, to make that was, comment. This, yeah. this was a salacious moment where, yeah. where, where it was. Is this guy writing because? This is what was actually happening, or is th- was this? Well, we're gonna just we're gonna talk about that in a right. minute. I, it, it's Procopius is clearly including this stuff, not because it's true, but because this is, as you said, this is some salacious shit. This is gonna sell. Well, not only is it gonna sell, but it, it's it's going to make things look really bad yeah. for the people that he wants to well, look exactly. at. Yeah, it, it's... And in this case, Theodore. Yeah. Well, Procopius also takes the real-life efforts of Theodora to pull underprivileged women from lives of prostitution and supporting them financially or giving them the opportunity to earn a living in a convent she set up outside Constantinople, which she did do, this is right. a matter of record, as some sort of human trafficking operation meant only to funnel these women to hers and Justinian's bedchamber for God knows what sorts of shenanigans. It was adrenochrome. <laughs> Well, Procopius also spends over a full page railing about how Theodora's worst single quality was her open defense of women whose husbands had publicly accused them of adultery. Procopius hates this. It is an absolute screed. And and The Secret History is a series of of chapters that are broken down into paragraphs, and they tend to to bounce around onto different topics. This is the one part of the secret history where he sticks with the same topic for the most amount of time that I could see in the entire document. Do we know anything about his marital life? Procopius? None. Nothing. Probably because there wasn't one. Uh, If if I had to guess, I would say that he was a perpetual bachelor. There is an element of fanfic in this, too. It's This is some... Well, it's more slash fiction, but... The secret history also goes uh, beyond just going after the royal couple and makes targets out of several of Justinian's prime courtiers, the foremost among them being Belisarius, Procopius' old boss, who is portrayed as a weak and sniveling yes-man who never actually won any of his victories based on his own military talents, and his wife Antonia, who's portrayed much as Theodora was, except not quite as outwardly demonic. The amount of schemes and plots this book contains are far too many to go into any detail because we'd be in front of these mics until the sun comes up. The book also doesn't seem to have any real timeline to it. Like I said, and the events referenced are in no particular chronological order, so it's a dense and challenging read, too. Now, it's an entertaining read, but it is a confusing one. And the thing about this book is how outlandish it is. I mean, so much of it is so demonstrably false. It's an absolute hit piece, and it reads like utter trash tabloid journalism. It's a bunch of page six blind items with names attached. It's pure invective. It's so, so we are we thinking Steve Bannon or are we thinking uh, Sean Spicer? <laughs> uh, Spicy was too busy uh, dancing on uh, 
doing the doing the rumble dancing yeah, with the stars. Dancing with the stars. <laughs> oh fuck, I forgot he was on TV. Yeah. yeah. Steve Bannon was a little too busy having his face continuing to inflate. So yeah. In addition to both, all while getting yeah. those uh, swastika tattoos, boobos. <laughs> so, in addition to both the blows to his empire and the blows to his body and mind following his battle with the plague, Justinian would soon suffer another massive blow. On the twenty eighth of June, five forty eight, his beloved Theodora died of quote a suppurating ulcer or malignant tumor. So, probably cancer. sounds like stomach cancer. Yeah. I um, several historians and that are quoted in. Uh, at least two of the podcasts that I mentioned say it's probably breast cancer. Mm. Really, mm-hmm. it could be that too. Yeah, it's because it, it deals a lot with her age. Uh, right. It it was very sudden. Like mm. there were, that checks out. Weren't a lot of symptoms. Like with stomach cancer, you you know there's a longer quickly. decline, right? Yeah, and they may have found they may they, they may have found everything when when they did whatever kind of mm. autopsies they do. They, they wouldn't they have done an autopsy. Yeah, not on but, a not on an empress. If, no, it would have been. Well, it was also it was. I mean, it was illegal to do them. Period. With period. Yeah. Period. Oh, it was canon yeah. law. Yeah. It was canon That's, law. You're right. Point. You're right. Um, her death simply devastated Justinian. Uh, she was his. Uh, yeah, like you said, nobody knows how exactly how old she was. She was likely in her yeah, late forties. She was somewhere between like forty-five and fifty-two. And unfortunately, most of the people that we know yeah. who have been affected by breast cancer were right in that age. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's. She was Justinian's love match at a time when marriages and the aristocracy were for power, political expediency, or both. And this sent the already mentally fragile emperor into an utter tailspin. I mean, it wouldn't it would send anybody into a tailspin. Right. So this right. is this is the one part of of Justinian's actions that are forgivable, I think. I, I grief does I would, yeah, grief does I, weird things I, to I people would, and especially when it's you know, when it's your partner, your confidant. But he would uh but he was already in such a fragile condition. The already suspicious and twitchy emperor began to wander the halls of the palace at night, screaming endlessly at unseen spirits and angels, cursing God for taking his beloved, begging for her back, which apparently freaked people out. It was said that some nights the breakdown would go whole hog, leading to the emperor dissolving into a collapsed pile, screaming wordlessly and snarling animalistically until he passed out, exhausted to be found in the morning. Now, some believed him to be possessed, not surprisingly. His behavior would lead Procopius in the secret history to write the following, quote, And some of those who had been with Justinian at the palace late at night, men who were pure of spirit, had thought they saw a strange demoniac form taking his place. One man said that the emperor suddenly rose from his throne and walked about, and indeed, he was never wont to remain sitting for long, and immediately Justinian's head vanished, while the rest of the body seemed to ebb and flow. Whereat the beholder stood aghast and fearful, wondering if his eyes were deceiving him. But presently, he perceived the vanishing head filling out and joining the body again, as strangely as it had left it. Another declared that he had stood beside Justinian as he sat, and all of a sudden, his face turned to a shapeless mass of flesh, without either eyebrows or eyes in their proper places, or anything else which makes a man recognizable. But after a while, he saw the form of his face come back again. I mean, look, given what we just discussed about the secret history, this is clearly horseshit. But obviously, it's obviously horseshit, and it's it's the it's it's Procopius's invective take. It's the hit take on you know the grief that that Justinian's going through. But it's also excellent body horror. I mean, this is some Cronenberg shit. Yeah, I was gonna say it's (laughs) body horror hasn't really changed that much. No, it hasn't. It's fascinating. It hasn't. Like it's like 
It's like they were just sitting around watching the thing. Yeah. Like the Carpenter version. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, Justinian would never remarry, preferring to say uh, in John Malalas's Chronicle that, quote, God had bestowed upon me the love of the greatest of all women of the earth, of unmatched quality and beauty. There shall never again be another of her like, and I shall not try to conflate one who is not to be so. It's said that the only time he seemed at peace with the passing of his beloved was during his daily visits to her tomb at the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople, where the massive Fatih mosques, uh, Mosque now stands, where he would pray and light candles and have one-sided conversations with the dead woman within. So despite the economic and social ravaging the dual disaster had inflicted on both the empire and its coffers and his personal loss and terrible mental health, Justinian was still hell-bent on continuing his goal of reuniting the former lands of the Roman Empire. And you can go back to the first episode to hear us talk about how for several years his armies made huge gains in North Africa, Italy, and the islands of the Mediterranean before cost, disease, and lack of resources ground these campaigns basically to a halt. About uh, Once the worst of the disease had abated, however, at least within the heart of the empire by about 545, it was time to pick back up with the conquests. Things hadn't been going well in Italy specifically. Due to the plague taking its toll on the Byzantine army and the garrisons of the cities it had conquered, the Ostrogoths, who ruled Italy, were able to retake a lot of the territory they'd lost up until 542. Rome itself had changed hands three times in three years. Now, scraping together what resources they could muster, in 546, the Byzantines sent an army of 20,000 men under Belisarius back into Italy to set things right. But their supply chain was utterly hobbled by the fact that they'd spent all their available cash just getting the army into the field, and against the fortified Ostrogoth strongholds, little headway was made. Justinian, in a fit of pique, ordered his trustiest commander relieved of his duties in early 548, but while Belisarius was returning to Constantinople with the Byzantine navy, he met and destroyed the main Ostrogoth fleet of more than 200 ships with only 60 of his own. Uh, which is a hell of a way to say, well, you're firing me, but here's what you're going to be missing out on, bub. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a it's statement. It's not saying, like, yeah. like the, the Germanic tribes never had a very strong navy, but it's, but it's still a hell of a it's a hell of a going away yeah, yeah. The, the, the Ostrogoths would have, at this point, because they, they, they were in Italy. Italy's got a fuck of a lot of coastline. <laughs> a lot of coast. But... It didn't mean the Romans were skilled sailors either, which they weren't. They just kept building larger and larger ships and putting more and more yeah. men on them well, so they could smash their way through your ship and then have all the dudes with swords hop yeah. off and stab you to death. Yeah. And eventually they would come up with Greek fire. Which, which was tradition. Yeah. <laughs> As was tradition. So having failed with Belisarius' forces, Justinian sent the Byzantine money machine into overdrive for the next two years. He didn't launch any major attacks, bided his time, and in early 551 he dispatched an army of 35,000 men under the eunuch general Narses to Italy to finally break Ostrogoth resistance. How pissed would you be a thousand years later? Everyone still referenced you as the eunuch. <laughs> well, because he's that? so well, no, it's because he's so unique. Because eunuchs, they would have positions within court, but they would not be they normally not, be given leadership of armies. Yeah, very seldom were they in a in a. So a, in a, a way, it's actually kind advisory. of a compliment. <laughs> he had no balls, but <laughs> he had balls. He had a lot of chutzpah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of moxie. He was a mensch. Yeah. But yeah, this massive force did the trick. Undergoing their own succession crisis and civil strife, the Ostrogoths lost town after town, and Narses rolled his forces right up the peninsula, finally taking the Ostrogoth capital at Ravenna by June of 552. Using thousands of pounds of gold and silver that he captured in the campaign, Narses hired thousands of Lombard and Gepid mercenaries and used them to finally help deliver the death blow to Ostrogoth resistance at the Battle of Tagani, where the Ostrogoth king was slain and his army of 25,000 men wiped out. Finally, the Byzantines were the masters of Italy. The next year, an army of Franks from, well, France, tried to snag some of northern Italy for themselves and were roundly defeated by Narses. And finally, after over a decade and a half of war, 
The Byzantines were the masters of the Italian peninsula. The Ostrogoths weren't gone, but their ability to rule Italy and resist Byzantine hegemony was. At the same time as Narses' Italian campaign, Byzantine eyes were turned on another former land of the Romans, and a key one at that, Spain, which since the 440s had been under the rule of another heavily Romanized tribe called the Visigoths. If Spain could be won back, then access into and out of the Mediterranean would be fully under Byzantine control. A rich province would be back in their hands, and Justinian would have another springboard from which to advance into places like France and Britain, key to realizing his dream of restoring the old Roman Empire. In response to a plea for help from a rebellious Visigoth aristocrat named Athengild, Justinian dispatched thousands of men under a general named Liberius, who was apparently well into his 80s, to help. In 552 and early 553, these men rather easily took first the Balearic Islands in the western Mediterranean, then several cities in southern Spain and a good chunk of what's now Morocco, leaving the Straits of Gibraltar in Byzantine hands. However, unsurprisingly, Liberius died pretty quickly, and Athengild now held the Visigoth throne and was determined to check the power of the Byzantines in the region. Realizing that he didn't have the power projection to take on a unified Visigoth state and continue to conquer Spain, Justinian cut a deal with Athengild. The Byzantines would be allowed to keep their holdings in Spain, would pay Athengild a tribute in order to do so, and would make their garrison forces in Spanish territories available to the Visigoths. A pretty easy call, if you ask me, but this would be the final break in the momentum of Justinian's advances. The Byzantine military machine was powerful, but not enough that it could fully support military operations across 2,000 miles of the Med. Plus, the Byzantine economy couldn't support the spending, and what had been disparate petty kingdoms that had taken over Roman territory a century earlier were now coalescing into more powerful nation-states. If Justinian couldn't overcome the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and Bulgars with ease, there's no way he'd be able to break the the power of the Merovingian kings of France or the powerful unified Alemanni who now controlled everything below the Rhine that the Merovingians didn't. So that was it. The Byzantine Empire had reached its greatest extent. There would be no further gains to be made. Justinian owned land from Syria to Spain, from the Danube to the Sahara, from the Red Sea to the Sea of Azov, but his dream of restoring the old borders of Rome at its height would only ever be partially realized. And they basically kind of died of localism. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. You can't yeah. You can't treat people in, you know, in Cadiz the same way that you treat people in Antioch. Yeah. Though the usual forms of warfare would peter out for the Byzantines after the early 550s, there was one other form that Justinian could wage. A little bit of covert economic warfare. Now, the Byzantines needed all the help they could get economically. Full recovery after the twin disasters of the 530s, 540s was generations away. Military spending was back up. A major natural, and a major disastral, natural disaster struck again in the form of a massive earthquake that devastated what's now Lebanon in early 551, killing about 30,000 people and causing a pressing need for relief programs. So, when Justinian was presented with an opportunity to steal a march in terms of trade that could greatly benefit the empire, he took it. And the area in which he would strike was silk. See, silk was a luxury good for which there was great demand in the Byzantine Empire. If you were part of the upper crust and didn't have silk clothing and silk hangings in your home, you weren't shit. Large amounts of silk could be a valuable trade commodity elsewhere in the Euro-Mediterranean world, and bolts of silk made a nice form of payment to rival warlords and mercenary groups. However, silk had to come from somewhere, and it wasn't part of the Byzantine Empire. Silk at this time was only made in the Far East, in China and its close environs, and then would make its way down the eponymous Silk Road to trade centers in the Persian and Byzantine Empire. So as a result, silk was stupid expensive. Now, there was something of a silk industry in the Byzantine Empire already, and there had been for a couple centuries, but this was fed by bales of raw silk being brought in and then spun and dyed. 
However, even the raw silk was still very costly, since the only way to get silk is from the cocoons of the larvae of the silk moth, which are silkworms, which feed almost entirely on white mulberry leaves, which were themselves very hard to come by outside of southeastern China. If Justinian could get the means to produce the raw silk within the empire, then he could drastically cut down on the cost up front, but still sell the finished silk for a high price, giving silk, the silk trade a massive profit margin, particularly in Europe and North Africa. He tried sponsoring alternative trade routes that went around the Caspian Sea or up through Ethiopia, but these failed to produce results. The Chinese wouldn't sell silkworms, and even if they did, there's no way they'd survive the journey all the way to the Byzantine Empire. Silkworms breed quickly, but they're fragile and very sensitive to the environment and to their particular diets. Then, however, Justinian caught a break. A pair of monks who had traveled to India had brought back surviving mulberry bushes, and it turns out that these could grow and thrive in the climate of several parts of the empire. These monks were called into Justinian's palace, and they informed him that they had contact with a man who'd managed to set up a silk-growing operation in eastern India. If they could acquire live silkworms from him, the journey back to Byzantium would be thousands of miles shorter, and the worms might survive the trip. Now, no one knows what Justinian promised in return, and it took two years, but the monks set off back down the Silk Road, managed to acquire either very young silkworm larvae or silkworm eggs, and hid them inside hollowed-out bamboo walking sticks. Hmm. Two years after setting out, they returned to Constantinople with surprising news. Enough of their silkworms had survived the trip to support a breeding population. Now the Byzantines had the two ingredients they needed, the plants and the worms. And it took a few years, but soon... A silk-growing operation had been set up in the empire, and the manufacture of domestic silk had been had begun. Cheaper silk to uh, to make still sold uh, cheaper silk to make still sold for ridiculous amounts of money in Greece, Italy, Spain, and France. And a new element of Byzantine trade had been established, literally stolen out from under the Chinese. Now the Silk Road would retain its name, but would have to be relied on for other trade goods. Now, listeners, we're going to take a short break to fill our beers, empty our bladders, and we'll be right back. Listen up, sinners. This is Kyle from Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We're going to be honest with you. We're fully aware you're filthy, immoral deviants, which is why we're offering a new service to our listeners. Indulgences. So here's how it works. You give us money, you don't burn an internal hellfire. Now, for tax purposes, we need to be a little creative with the transaction. So visit patreon.com slash trrpod and subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and know you'll still find the pearly gates. Guess you'll also get bonus content like early episode access and roundtable conversations, but you're monsters. You know you need this. All right, everybody. Class is back in session. So after the sweeping events of the 530s and 540s, Within the, and the last spate of conquests. The 550s in the Byzantine Empire were relatively uneventful. They were There were the normal border skirmishes, deals being done with other, uh, other states and tribes, and the little spasms of military advance here and there. New laws would be passed, old laws stricken from the record, court advisors would come and go. We could go into some of the specifics of these, because from a historical perspective, they are genuinely interesting, but we'd be here recording for days. So suffice to say... For the Empire, it was kind of a time of calm, of stasis, where everything was moving a little more slowly. There were some cultural changes that were going to happen, as we'll talk about in a bit, but it would have been slow and not really that noticeable over the short term. With the new influx of silk production and the beginning of a population rebound, the economy began to stabilize, even if it wasn't booming like it had been in the beginning of Justinian's rule. Taxes stayed high, but now the Empire was nearly a generation into this new status quo, and so public resistance to it was at a low ebb. 
there wasn't a surplus, but the empire was no longer hemorrhaging cash either. So this sort of paycheck-to-paycheck paradigm existed for government spending. There was one really big question on people's minds, though. What happens after Justinian shuffles off this mortal coil? Now, in 559, the empire suffered its last existential crisis under Justinian's rule. A large army of steppe horse nomads from the north of the Black Sea looped down through the eastern Balkans, bypassed the bulk of the defenses meant to keep them out by crossing the Danube River when it, would, when it had frozen over, and utilized their mobility to blow through the lands of the empire, and within weeks were camped outside the Theodosian walls, which we don't know if they were expecting or not. Either way, the city was once again under siege. Given that they could still be supplied by sea, Constantinople wasn't going to starve, but blocking landside access would still squeeze the capital's economy, and that could lead to a popular uprising, putting Justinian's rule under threat. So the old emperor called on his trusty standby, Belisarius, who was pretty much retired now that he was pushing 60, and had him put together a force of Byzantine palace guard cavalry and citizen levies, and they sallied out to attack the besiegers, breaking through the siege lines and rolling their way into the headquarters of the Steppe Khan at a town called Melantius, about 20 miles away. Now, John Malalas's chronicle claims that it was 300 Byzantines that attacked 20,000 steppe nomads, and this is a lie. <laughs> just like the other 300. Well, I was just yeah. going to say that the Zack Snyder film will come out next month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they, they saw the success of 300 there. They didn't need to send anybody yeah. else. They were like, it worked once. <laughs> They see kind of. Honestly, it probably would have been a better sequel than 302. Well, hang on. It had a sex fight. Although, Fuck you. Ava Green. It had Ava, Ava Green, Green having a sex fight. Honestly, it was more ridiculous <laughs> and therefore better than the first film. The question is, did Belisarius see it? 300 Spartans in Thermopylae passed, but what if they, wait for it, attacked? <laughs> <laughs> what this book presupposes is, maybe they attacked. My, my only question is, did Belisarius see it in IMAX? Everything was in slow motion. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, big old screen where Gerard Butler's nipples are three feet across. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Uh, You're a Scottish laird now. Yeah. He has to bow to you. He does. <laughs> so the Byzantines still managed to steal the initiative and got their victory, driving the nomads back and allowing Belisarius to once again go back into a well-deserved retirement. <laughs> I like to think that this whole time he was just bitching the whole way. Just, it's like it's, grumbling. Yeah, it's Danny Glover. It's, I'm too old for this shit. Now, apart from some minor skirmishing and incursions in the Balkans and on the border with the Persians and against some remaining Ostrogoth strongholds in Italy, this would be the last major uh, military action of Justinian's rule. Though he was clearly a disturbed man, Justinian had always stayed pretty mentally sharp during his good days displaying the qualities that had set him up for his rule in his youth, but even that came to an end eventually. By the beginning of the 560s, amid his bouts of paranoia and psychotic episodes, it was becoming clear that Justinian's steel trap memory and his ability to process information was beginning to wane, as so often happens to folks who reach a certain age. He was now in his late 70s, and it was clear that he was slipping into senility. He really started to seem very old and infirm indeed, his life experiences catching up with him. But one big question that had plagued the people at court was this. Who was going to succeed Justinian? Everyone feared that he would die without naming a successor, and since the last couple of decades had shown that you didn't ask him anything he didn't want to be asked, and didn't pressure the guy in case he uh, went off into one of his episodes, no one really had the stones to bring it up in court, so the question remained very much an open-ended one. Finally, on November 14th, 565 AD, at the age of 83, for Justinian... 
it all did come to an end. His body racked by the damage from his battle with plague, his brain damaged, Justinian finally passed from what appeared to be natural causes. Likely something along the lines of organ failure or, given reports of what sound like dementia, possibly Alzheimer's or something similar. He was succeeded by his nephew, Justin II, 45 years old by this time, the same age that Justinian had been when he took, first took the throne, and having been groomed for power, much like, his un- uh, much like his uncle had been by his own uncle. Justin had been nominated as successor during a deathbed proclamation, and it was a little complicated because Justinian happened to have two nephews named Justin, and the only witness to the decision was Callinicus, the eunuch who acted as the provost of the sacred bedchamber. If I ever make it big, I'm setting aside $50,000 a year to pay somebody to have that title. <laughs> They're just going to make my bed every morning. That's what's it. The, what's, what, and what's, I will pay health insurance. What's the upfront bonus for removing their balls? Actually, I hadn't given that any thought. Because like, if $50,000, I'm like... Eh? <laughs> well, $50,000 a year salary, no. $50,000 a year with a $50,000 sign-on no-nut bonus? I'm in. Uh, if, if it's fifty grand, times I ain't is, using them anyway. Times is tough, <laughs> right? Well, hey, yeah. So all we gotta do is bring it to Gelder. Yeah. Bring it to Gelder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but here's You're the thing: shears, we keep them, we dry them, we put the little like cat bells inside of them, and you have to wear them around your neck. Whatever. Ah, uh, see, I just put them on the doorknob of the front door, so I know when somebody's coming uh, in. Ah, yeah. that that little click, clack, click, click, click. Oh, clack, Newton's clack, cradle, just bronze, <laughs> just bronze. <laughs> Oh, I, I, I hate having like meetings with that guy. I'm gonna, they're going to be real truck nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so, God damn it. So we don't know who made the decision as to which Justin was going to be the new emperor, whether it was Justinian or it was Callinicus. But Callinicus was sure to mention which Justin it was. Uh, now, Justin started his rule by declaring full religious toleration, reversing his uncle's policy, and set about finding out what to do about the Byzantines' empty treasury. The rulership of the Byzantine Empire would go on, much as it had for two centuries previous. Within a year of the death of Justinian, many of his closest advisors and generals had happened to kick the bucket as well. By the end of 566, Narses, Belisarius, court chronicler Jordanus, and John Malalus were all dead. Procopius would be dead by 570, and by 590, all the writers who'd known the man himself, who'd been in Justinian's presence, were all gone. It's a conspiracy. Yeah. Maybe Do you think <laughs> Procopius wrote a book about how awesome he was? Do you think he has, like, not the secret history, but, like, the awesome history? He just talks about, like, how tall and cool he right is. Write history and kick ass. <laughs> and so, Procopius yeah. was 6'4", and he had an 8-pack. Yeah. <laughs> he had a 2-cubit wiener. So many... <laughs> Well, you want it to be accurate. Right. Well, it, accurate it, to well, the time. And, and, well, and technically, I think he would have used dong. <laughs> Dongus. <laughs> no, sorry, they'd be writing in Greek by this time. Dongoi. Yeah, dongoi. <laughs> so medieval chroniclers would continue to write of Justinian for hundreds of years, some of them drawing on firsthand accounts of the man, uh, but just as many, some as late as the 12th and 13th century, posing as eyewitnesses for events that were <laughs> they were seven centuries separated from. Which I think is just hilarious. Just yeah, go for it. These are the writings history. of a guy that was there. What are you talking about? The ink's still wet. Fuck you. <laughs> so, what was the legacy of Justinian's rule and the events that took place during those years? The first major effect of what went down during Justinian's rule was the emergence of a whole new world power. 
As we mentioned in our episodes about the plague and the great climate disaster, some areas weren't hit with the fatality rates that we saw in the Byzantine Empire, the Persian Empire, and other areas. And in some cases, they even saw an improvement to the amount of land available for growing crops and grazing animals, leading to a net growth in their population over the coming decades, rather than the situation in Eastern Rome, which took over a century and a half to recover its pre-disaster population levels. One of these areas was the Arabian Peninsula, where the population more than doubled between 530 and 630 AD. The peninsula was home to a mix of settled and nomadic cultures of polytheistic and monotheistic faiths. But among this population was a man named Muhammad. Finding a following based, upon his, based on his status as a prophet, his devotees began growing in number, taking on and absorbing local tribes, then settlements, then finally some of the smaller nation-states within the Arabian region. Soon they began to expand, driven by a desire to conquer, conquer their classical enemies and to spread their new faith. Islam was on the march, and it was a very fast march indeed. Starting in earnest around 630 AD, by the turn of the 640s, the Sassanid Persian Empire was gone, absorbed into the growing tide of Islam, and the forces of the Caliphate were making inroads in Egypt and the Levant. By 650, they were moving into Armenia and the Black Sea region, and they pushed the Byzantines out of most of North Africa as far as Tunisia, all of the coastal areas of the eastern Mediterranean, such as Lebanon, Israel, and Syria, and were even taking land in Turkey. By the end of the century, Muslim forces held supremacy from India to Spain, and held Cyprus and Sicily. This ensconced the Muslim caliphates and their successor states as the main rivals to Byzantine power in the Mediterranean world from that day forth. By 700 AD, most of the military gains made during Justinian's rule had finally been erased, only some of those in Italy and the Balkans staying in Byzantine hands, and even those were now more vulnerable without the money and manpower that came from the lost Byzantine lands. Never again would the empire see the sort of surpluses of wealth that Justinian had sat on. Then, there's Justinian's legacy in terms of statecraft. His famed law codes, the Corpus Juris Civilis, stayed on as a, the basis for Byzantine law until the very demise of the empire, and would spread throughout Europe as petty kingdoms grew into nation-states as the Middle Ages plotted on. The Corpus was a required text for law students from Ireland to Moscow in the late Renaissance and early modern period, and is quoted directly in the laws of post-revolutionary France under Napoleon. Justinian's relationship with the church, always complicated, also left its own legacy on Europe. Now, anyone with even a cursory knowledge of the Middle Ages knows that for the crown heads of the Christian world, the church was both, was both, uh, both the best prop for a ruler's power, but also their greatest impediment. And for Justinian, this was no different. He was forced to walk a fine line, and while the first couple centuries of Christianity had seen a striking of the balance of power between church and state, it was the rule of Justinian that interwove them to a level that would never truly be undone. It was during Justinian's rule that religion became a true arm of state power. Yay. Or at least Christian religion became a true <laughs> arm of state power. And Justinian's popular legacy is complicated. His image after his death was sort of split down the middle, at least as far as records go. I'm sure that there were plenty at court who were glad to be rid of him, and his support among the population was definitely not good, but everyone was too cowed by his authoritarian measures, or just too wiped out after, by a decade of pure hell, to push back too hard against it. He was seen by critics of later centuries about 50-50 as either a just ruler, trying to do his best, with the hand he was dealt, or as an absolute paranoid madman. Hell-bent on squeezing his people financially and driven by a mad lust for conquest. Later portrayals of him are frequent and seem to strike a balance between these two uh, areas. He appears everywhere from Dante's Divine Comedy to the Prince Valiant comic strip as a cautionary character. 
driven to do what's best for his people, but motivated by a selfish drive for fame and glory. He was made a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church, celebrated every year on the date of his death, November 14th. It is worth noting, however, that in the civilization computer games, when you play as the Byzantines, the leader available is not Justinian, but Theodora. Hmm. And I can, com- I, I can confirm this. I'm a fan of the civilization games. Nerd. <laughs> I, I, I'm a nerd? Yeah, how's, that, how's, costume. That, how's the? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> how's the closet full of Star Wars suits yeah. coming along, Kyle? <laughs> so just well, I mean, yeah. not well, helping my accuracy. Well, <laughs> well, let's be honest. I mean, you're the only one I know whose bedroom is decorated with Star Wars Legos, and yet you still have more sex than the three of us. So, <laughs> well, we all know that because there's no God. We we all know that Rob's ID on on on, on Deep State Silk Road is uh, Mrs. Theodora two thousand dot com. You ever heard the story of Lita and the Swan? Oh, well, let me spin you a yarn. Honk honk. So don't get too close; it'll break your arm. So Justinian is seen quite often as the last true Roman emperor. Emphasis on the Roman, and there is something to this. He was likely the last Byzantine ruler to grow up speaking Latin around the house and during his reign. Uh, Even though Greek was very much the lingua franca being spoken in the streets of the capital, uh, however, Latin was still the language of church and government. However, after Justinian's death, this would change as Greek-speaking emperors and church figures slowly shifted that paradigm. And within a century, Greek was the language of rulership as well. And as history has showed us in so many other cases, massive cataclysms tend to bring about significant social changes, not just in governance and philosophy, but in art, style, and culture. If you had gone to Constantinople during the early part of Justinian's rule, you could be forgiven for thinking you were in ancient Rome itself. By a century later, the styles of art, clothing, architecture, all of it had changed, and you would have felt yourself standing in a very, very different place. And to think that it only took religiously 300 more years to decide, hey, we're not Roman anymore, we're Greek. Mm. Yeah. And then there's the story of Justinian's namesake. The next emperor named Justinian didn't come to power for another 120 years, but Justinian II took the throne in 685 at the age of 16 in a time when the empire was stable even in the Ascendant, and he immediately set about winning battles and signing lucrative tribute agreements with the Armenians, the Arabs, and the Bulgars. That was until 692, when he took an army of 40,000, mostly Slavs, into Armenia to fight, an inv- to fight an invading army of Arabs. But the Arabs bribed the Slavs into revolting, and Justinian II was roundly defeated and barely escaped with his life. This started a downslide, which led to his eventual overthrow in 695, when a, principal, uh, when a provincial governor named Leontios led a massive popular uprising. Now, to make sure that he lost all appeal, Leontios had Justinian II's nose cut off before sending him into a forced exile in the Crimea. Uh, we didn't really get into this in the first three parts of the series, but amputation and mutilation were very popular in the Byzantine Empire. Not only as a punishment for criminals, uh, the legal codes are full of crimes for which you could lose an eye, an ear, fingers, toes, hands, your nose, or your genitals, but it was also a political tool, much like in this case. Blinding an enemy meant he would have to be helped around for the rest of his life, making him weak in the public imagination, and he couldn't lead an army into battle, an essential part of maintaining power in Byzantium. 
Cutting off both of the hands was seen as a death knell for power as well, as it left someone unable to conduct any official state business. Without hands, you can't place your seal on, its, on an official state document. And of course, castrating somebody left him unable to father children, and culturally, nobody would want you to be emperor anyway, because keeping your testicles meant a whole lot to the Byzantines. Um, castrated men, and here I mean those who had recovered from getting the slice, as quite often the process just killed you, uh, were referred to in records as kyrionekros, which is Middle Greek for the almost dead. Which is not your week after the procedure. You are barely human anymore because we cut your nuts off. Can we use that for the Senate for now on? <laughs> I like that phrase. Now, why Justinian's... Kyrionekros, Kyr- <laughs> right? Yeah. Is that, is Isn't that that or... Mr. Mister song? No, that's... Necros down the... No, that's... Sorry, that's different. <laughs> no, that's actually a prayer in the Roman yeah. church. Thank you, I think it's you, actually dude. the next ghost concept <laughs> yeah, album. No. Are we saying Kyrie Eleison? <laughs> yeah. So why Justinian the second... I heard that song, yeah. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so why Justinian... We sing that at the beginning. <laughs> right. Like, who the fuck came up with this? Yeah. Like, hey, did you write that song last week? Yeah. Can I hear it? Yeah. Well, instead of yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear it before the Steeler game. <laughs> okay. Well. Oh God! I imagine the, it. It kind of. It kind of works. I can work with this. I can work with it. But we didn't. Uh, we didn't. Uh, we didn't cut his nuts off. Instead, we broke both of his arms. Oh, we have a song for that too. Here's broken wings. <laughs> so. Okay, we got to get off, Mister Mister. So why Justinian II's nose was cut off instead of something else, I'm not quite sure, but I'm guessing it was a mix of, here's a reminder of me kicking you off your throne because everybody hates you, and look at you, Mr. No-Nose. Nobody's going to want you back in power with that big old scar in the middle of your face. Um, Also, Justinian II's nose was apparently a very distinguishing feature, so maybe that also has something to do with it? I, I, I don't know. I, it I was does give a, you an immediate Walking Dead look. Well, like you but become what I mean a is, skull. Well, there's that, but it's also well, records talk about how Justinian II had a very pronounced nose. So maybe because it's such an identifying feature, maybe that's why they went for it. I don't know. Then I, you know, we're four centuries, se- fourteen centuries separated from this, so I don't know. But the thing is, yeah, but we yeah. still have Harry Potter and Voldemort. So. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Imagine Voldemort. And that's why that's why Ray Fiennes couldn't be the Emperor either, because he got right. his nose off. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah if Method. you were visibly disfigured, then you weren't allowed to be the Emperor. I don't know why the fuck that was a rule. Yeah. Oh, but wait. But wait. It, the it, thing it, is, was the sculpt, it was the sculptor's union. It's, but, it's visibly. Yeah. <laughs> However, Justinian II finds himself a golden loophole. Yeah. Quite literally. The thing is, it didn't... Yeah, it, their, their plan didn't work. Justinian the Dose got himself a solid gold replica of his old schnoz and started strapping it to the front of his face, which is a pretty good power move, even after you've been... Especially after you've been taken down a but, bunch of But pegs. the real power move is, fuck you, I have gold. Yeah. yeah. Not only am I going to make a nose out of something, I'm going to make it well, out of pure from that gold. point. Well, from that point forward, though... It's well, yeah. It's like doing like the Tycho Brahe and taking it up a step. Yeah, it's great. Well, you've seen this before. T- I mean, not before, but like later, like during the Crusades, with the leper king that would wear a mask. <clears> Baldwin the Fourth, yeah. <clears throat> but <clears throat> Justinian the Second did spend the rest of his life bearing the popular surname uh, Rhino Tomatoes or Slit Nosed. Uh, 
and that's in like religious records about him. Oh my god! Which that's that's, that's a little rough. That's, that's that's rubbing salt in the wound. And that's it, I mean that's a that's a, oh my god! I almost completely unironically said it's a little on the nose. I'm oh, su- I am a stupid, man. stupid man. Boo, boo, no, no, no! Don't boo, boo me! Don't boo me! I Why are you booing it. me? I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Now when he was, so, when Justinian was exiled by 702, he was apparently such a pain in the ass and such a liability to the settlement where they'd stashed him on the periphery of the empire that they that the governor of that province had lobbied to give him back, which just meant death for the guy. <laughs> so he escaped north to the Khazar Khaganate, which if you don't know anything about the Khazars, look them up because they're an extremely interesting steppe people from the 7th to the 10th century, notably because their do- dominant religion was Judaism. Hmm. They were people of the book. Right. So Justinian II brought his, uh, bought his way in to the Khaganate by giving his sister as a bride to the Khan, who he, interestingly, renamed Theodora in order to increase her appeal. Huh. So some stories had survived. What stories? I don't know. Definitely the goose. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, she does this thing on stage. Geese come out. It's crazy. <laughs> it's... But the Khan said yes. And immediately... Great HJs. Yeah. Great HJs. The con said yes, and H immediately. For honk. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, God. The con said yes, and immediately also agreed to a bribe from the new Byzantine emperor, Tiberius IV, to kill the exiled Justinian. <laughs> Pretty, yeah. Oh, One hand giveth, the other hand taketh guy. away. So Justinian hopped on a ship and sailed for Bar- Bulgaria, but he was caught in a nasty storm. Uh, now, because we all know when you're really in trouble and you need help. Go to Eastern Europe. Go to the Balkans. Yeah. <laughs> so a priest. That tra- was the whole plot of yeah. Taken Two. Yeah. <laughs> so a priest traveling with the deposed emperor said that if he promised to be magnanimous to his rivals if he regained power, God would not only let them survive the storm, but give him the means to regain the throne. So Justinian, very, very sensibly, agreed. The storm abated, and he managed to make it to Bulgaria and cut a deal with the Bulgar Khan for an army of fifteen thousand horsemen and return for some Byzantine territory, a healthy cash stipend, and the hand of Justinian's daughter, Anastasia. Now, by spring of 705, Justinian's new army had invaded the Byzantine Empire and had made it all the way to the walls of Constantinople without being intercepted. This is becoming a bit of a trend. Mm. And had spent three days trying to convince the citizens of the capital to open the gates to no avail. However, Justinian and a band of companions managed to get inside the walls through a disused water conduit and roused what was a surprising amount of people who still supported him, and seized control of the imperial palace. He offered Wait a minute. A- he he went up through a water conduit? Yeah. So what you're saying is he went th- up through a half a mile of <laughs> things that nobody should ever talk, talk about. about. <laughs> so he offered a magnanimous peace to the sitting emperor and Leontios, who both agreed to step down and, wasting no time and remembering his promise to God, beheaded them both in the Hippodrome in front of a screaming <laughs> crowd of thousands. Uh, Justinian II also had hundreds more of his rivals' main supporters publicly killed and had the Patriarch of Constantinople, the highest religious official in the Byzantine Empire, publicly blinded, castrated, and sent back to Rome. You know he was about to sign the proclamation to let him all off the hook, and then he caught a mirror, saw his nose, and I like just to think like, the strap, you know what? Fuck this guy. Well, I like to think that the strap came loose and it just went thunk on the desk in front of him. <laughs> somebody, somebody sneezed and he was like, oh, this son this of a bitch. <laughs> and that's what threw him over the edge. Look, looks over, sees some dude leaning down, smelling a flower. Yeah. 
How? That's it. You're dead, motherfuckers. <laughs> Just yeah. goes off. So how he managed to come back to the throne and break the tradition of a mutilated man being seen as unable to rule, uh, as the emperor was a reflection of God and God was perfect, I'm not really sure. Um, he might have made promises to the populace. I, I really don't know, because there's really no historical indication of why everyone just took that those centuries of tradition and just bucked it. Why they went, eh, yeah. Nobody knows. I, it's probably easier to forget these things when you're not seeing photographs of yeah. your leader on a daily basis. Like, you know, you talk about old gold nose, but, you know, you're not... Unless you're seeing a public proclamation, you're not yeah. looking them in the eye. No, you're it's not also seeing an image of them, a video of them. Although I guess too, when you when you I look don't know, into, they were uh, pretty. They, they you look at somebody's face, statues. Yeah. Like they, yeah, but the Romans were that. big on statues. Who's paying for the statues? Yeah, yeah. That's, true. that's true. And that's why everybody's gonna forget Bobby Lee. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Justinian would be in power for his second reign for another six years, marked by him turning on the Bulgars who brought him back to power and swiftly losing the war that followed as well as another war to the Arabs. Uh, he did manage to exercise more control over the Pope, maybe having something to do with sending Constantinople's highest religious figure back to Rome without eyes or nuts. But by 711, uh, Justinian II's lack of wins and heavy-handed tactics against political opposition led to another popular uprising against his rule. And while escaping to Armenia, he was arrested and brought back to the capital. The same mistake would not be made twice, and boy, did they make sure. Justinian himself himself was publicly beheaded in the Hippodrome, his head preserved in pitch, and taken to Ravenna and Rome to be displayed. With or without the nose? Well, there's an apocryphal story. I, it's probably not true, but whoever came up with it has the same kind of mind we do. They said that they decided to dispose of his body by just chucking it straight into the Bosphorus with the golden nose shoved up his ass. <laughs> that's I very... Don't, I don't know that there is any truth to that, but Roman. it's... I, I there, there's it. a kernel of truth it. behind every every tall uh, tale. Yeah, because you know there's like four guys who just have no power well, and don't give a shit who are responsible for the body. They'd be like, bro, you'd be really fucking yeah. funny. Yeah. Well, I or, also think, or oh. okay, what are we gonna do with the nose? <laughs> well, okay. Here's what I think the <laughs> kernel of out, truth guys. is. Here's what I think the kernel of truth is. I think the kernel of truth is they threw his body in the Bosphorus. I think the lie is that they shoved the gold nose up his ass because what do you do with the gold? You you're sell gonna, the nose. Well, you're either going to keep it as a trophy or you're going to melt it down for other use. Yeah. I mean, you can't really keep it as a trophy because somebody's going to know you yeah. stole and they're going to want it. So what they probably did was chop it up, hammer it out. And well, then, if you're the uh, emperor who sits on the throne now after deposing the shitty Justinian II, but you, get, like to the, you get to keep the horn, nose like, and nobody's going to say I'd boo about my, it. buy a crown like a unicorn. Yeah. However, you do or just wear you, it on top of your real nose to really dunk on the guy. There you go. <laughs> However, that wasn't the end of it. Justinian II's six-year-old son, oh, no. his pregnant wife, and his mother were dragged from the Church of the Holy Apostles in which they'd taken sanctuary, and all three were publicly flayed alive. Well, this story just Ugh. got worse. Yeah, yeah it's... <laughs> I mean, he... Justinian, sorry. Justinian II probably got a... Better than they do. Yeah. Well, I, I apologize to everybody for always reinforcing every five minutes just how life was nasty, brutish, and short in the early Middle Ages, but this is the reality of it. So, uh, yeah. So that not only undid the life of the emperor, but an entire dynasty that had seen a century of ruling the empire. There would be no more Justinians to ever sit on the Byzantine throne. So for the next seven centuries and change after, the power of the Byzantine Empire waxed and waned, and after the 11th century, almost entirely waned. They play a role in the rule of Italy, Sicily, Corsica, and a bunch of the Greek islands in Cyprus. 
It was still a trading hub, a terminus of the trade routes from Asia and the Indian Ocean, and it was still a hub for trade throughout Europe. The city never lost its status as a massive cultural, ethnic, and religious pelting pot, bringing together everyone from Ethiopians to Vikings and all in between. Constantinople would become the center of the new Eastern Orthodox Church after its final official split from Rome in 1054. It would be a request by the Emperor Alexius Komnenos for military aid that would set off the centuries of mayhem that would be the Crusades, giving the Byzantines a new force in the region that was as much an enemy as it was an ally. In fact, in 1204, during the Fourth Crusade, mm -hmm. an army of 25,000 crusaders besieged the city after cutting a deal with the deposed former emperor, Alexios IV, for support in their mission to recapture Jerusalem. They were led in by agents working to undermine the sitting ruler and reneging on their promise not to loot and pillage, spent three days sacking and burning the city in an orgy of violence, which some historians say may have killed as many as 100,000 of the city's residents, including its entire Jewish population. Not only did this wreck the city, but it eviscerated the mechanisms of government, and within a few years, much of the empire had splintered, leaving the Byzantine Empire to be made up of a few islands, about a quarter of Turkey, and some territory in the Balkans. The state of the Byzantines as the dominant power in the region was done for good. Some territory would be regained by the 1260s, but Byzantine weakness would give way to the rise of another empire in the region, the Ottomans. Another century and a half of warfare would result in a constantly shifting balance of power, but one that in the long term moved in the Ottomans' favor. Soon, Byzantine territory barely covered 50 miles in any direction from the city, and it wasn't long before the killing blow came. In 1453, Sultan Mehmed II led an army of 80,000 Turks against the massive walls of the city. Still an imposing defense, but he had at his disposal a game-changer. Cannons. Hundreds of them. Some so large that they could fire a stone ball weighing half a ton, nearly a mile. Soon, for the first time in over a thousand years, the Theodosian walls had been breached by force. The capital city and the Byzantine Empire itself was conquered in full. The city would go on, and as a capital no less, for the Ottoman Empire and since 1923, the nation of Turkey, as the great city of Istanbul, which to this day still gives much honor to its Roman and Byzantine roots, because Istanbul was Constantinople. That's Istanbul. Not Constantinople. Oh, don't it's start. been a long time. Gone. Fuck, fuck you. Fuck you. No. I waited four episodes. We no. I held off four episodes. We, so you promised. Me. You promised. So, so what you're telling me is we just spent the last five and a half hours listening to the history of a one-hit wonder called They Might Be Giants. If we're just trying to answer the question of why did Constantinople get the works. It's nobody's business but the Turks. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> Fucking monsters. So despite, so despite nine centuries separating the reign of Justinian from the eventual final demise of the empire he ruled, we can clearly see that the events of his rule still contributed to the Byzantine downfall. Without the effects in the plague and the climate disaster, as we mentioned earlier, you don't get the rise of Islam, and without the advent of Islam and its climb to supremacy in the Near East, you don't have the table set for the long centuries of Byzantine Arab warfare, the Crusades, and the coming of the Ottoman Empire. Without Justinian's approach to relations with the Church, you don't get the 1054 Schism, which removes the final sense of wholeness of the Christian world, and brings about a, a state of... And the fact that the yeah. Eastern Orthodox are heretics. Yeah. Well, it brings about a state of Cold War between the two halves of Christendom for centuries, further shaping the geopolitical landscape of parts of multiple continents for centuries to come. And of course, without the networks of the, uh, that the Byzantine Empire built over centuries throughout Europe, Asia, and Africa, the passage of goods, people, and most importantly, knowledge 
doesn't happen to the extent it did. If not for the Byzantine networks, we don't get the Renaissance when we do and where we do, and we don't get the demand for certain types of goods in Europe that drive the age of exploration and all of the ups and downs that brings. And without it, we don't get the modern world as we know it today. Your daddy met your mother because of Justinian the first. Mm-hmm. So one thing is clear. And your great-great-great-granddaddy was probably Genghis Khan. Yeah. Statistically speaking. Please, yeah. please, please, let us not dishonor Dan Carlin. It is Genghis, Genghis Khan. Genghis, Genghis Khan. Khan. Yeah. So one thing is clear. It's due to the stories of his reign and the importance of his legacy that make Justinian I the most famous and, in my opinion, the most interesting of all the rulers to have ever sat upon the Byzantine throne. And so a four-episode epic, our longest series yet, comes to an end. Thank you for taking the ride with us. And that's that, boys. I said it before and I'll say it again. That's the most famous person that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's it. That's what the old man... Uh, we're, we're talking about... I mean, it's... We were talking about this the other day. It, it, this is the guy that... He pretty much started everything. Yeah. He's arguably responsible for like the entirety of the Middle Ages. Right. I don't think I really assessed him in a uh, academic setting until I literally became a history major at right. Pitt. Mm-hmm. Like I think I was like twenty in the first time I came across him in a classroom setting. Yeah. It it's it it's fascinating. And it's just the tendrils of Justinian's rule are in everything. Everything from yeah. it, it, I mean, he plays a role in the shaping of Europe, of Asia, of the Middle East, all of it. It's Scottish all tied hooligans. in. It's all tied in. Well, I mean, it really is because it, without you know the Byzantine relationship with Italy and and the Roman Church and everything, you don't get the Middle Ages as we see them. You don't get the High Medieval Period. Feudalism doesn't develop as 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 it does without the influence of the Byzantines. It's well, as you just lately mentioned, the the, the Great Schism, mm-hmm. you know, over you know the, the actual you know the, the hyperstatic union, the actual fight over the divinity of Christ within the Christian Church, yeah. which is where you get so many denominations and so many splinters. It. It's, it all it's, goes back there. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, and like I said, without. You know, without uh, the the Byzantine networks, you don't get the passage of classical knowledge from the Middle East back into Europe. Right. And you don't get the Renaissance. Without the Renaissance, you don't have the modern world. It's just this domino effect of the Byzantines did this, and eventually there may be a few steps in between, but this happened, and this is why the world is the way it is today. Now, the way we view history is it's a series of achievements. Mm-hmm. Like through, through all of mankind, that's what history is. It's the study of achievements. The one thing I will say... Regarding Justinian, the one thing that I have gleaned from this, outside of like Juris Civilis, Justinian has largely shaped history because of his failures, mm-hmm. right. which makes him fairly unique in that in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to immediately call the plague and 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 a miniature ice age failures, but those those were things that I mean, this is the guy who really hammered home the division between Eastern and Western Rome. Yeah. Right. He abandoned their language. There like he, right. he there was no more Latin. Um these were he marched through the Eastern Empire, up through the Ostrogoths and all that, and weakened them so much they could no longer resist Persia. He is responsible for 
in what I can only describe as my favorite Cards Against Humanity card in the entire deck, the Rising Tide of Islam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, really. I mean, and, yeah. and he conquered the last German tribes yeah. who were still Romans. Well, I mean, with, they, well, they wore the Roman, they wore Roman yeah. clothes, they spoke the language. And, and I want to call them Germanic tribes because everybody else calls them barbarians and it yeah. gives kind of the wrong no, impression that's, right. that's mm-hmm. not yeah they're, they're not a bunch of guys running around in horn helmets wearing like bear pelts and biting you i mean that did happen <laughs> but that was but these were i mean this was roman society but it you was know, germany our days it off. was germany and that was a fetish <laughs> right <laughs> I, i'm not here to talk about any or to judge sexual mores <laughs> it's but yeah it, it's well it, but yeah, and and he is the he is the the center point yeah. of all these. That's right. what's fascinating. Well, to expand on that, it's what's interesting about Justinian is when you look at other historical figures. Let's look at another um, famous Roman emperor. Let's look at um, Augustus, or let's look at Julius Caesar, yeah. or let's look at all these other rulers of empires. They are famous because of the things they choose to do. They are famous. Their legacy is based around their actions. Correct. Justinian is a an outlier because so much of his legacy is based on happenstance beyond his control. He can't stop those volcanoes from erupting and causing the climate disaster. He can't really stop the plague from taking hold because by the time he becomes aware of it, it's already there and there's no stopping. Yeah, those are can't start stop the plague now. That's true. Right. right. But to be to be entirely fair here, plagues are notoriously difficult to stop. Yes. <laughs> like Knowing what we know about shit. Yeah, I got about a quarter million or a quarter billion people in the 14th century who could attest to that. Right. I mean, even now it's incredibly difficult. We've got 700,000 people in the United States. We've eradicated, what, one germ? One? But it's, it's, (laughs) but it, it, but it's, it's really difficult to stop germs. But I can't think of another ruler of his level who is so important because of being a victim of circumstance. Yeah, like the, his his thrust of history yeah. is also because quite a few things were thrust upon him. But you have all these events that are so key to the development of the entire world since, and it does spread out in these waves throughout every continent, except for, I hate to use this term, pre-Columbian, but pre-Columbian Americas. And it really doesn't work out there, but it goes through Asia, Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and he is it's these events, and Justinian is at the center of it all. And that's why he's so fascinating. And he's, he kind of has to ride these waves at some point. At some point, he does make these terrible decisions. And then, for the second half of his reign, it's a dude in the middle of a constant breakdown. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is, and this is what But I'm he stays on the throne for 20 so, more years when he's right. going completely so, nuts. He got the plague and lived to 83. That's true, yeah. So this, so this to me, begs the question. Is he a protagonist or is he an antagonist? Uh, I don't know. Where do we put it? I don't think I he mean, has to be one or the other. I don't think he's one mutual. of those characters I'm, in history that is just so prolific. He definitely that, has two different acts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is he Old Testament or New Testament? He's got both. He doesn't have to pick. You can both be the leader who built the Hagia Sophia and also crippled his own economy with taxation. see, this modernizes our look. In my opinion, this modernizes our look in our recent history in other avenues. That you can have a person... Who is a protagonist? Who mm-hmm. has done very great things? You know. They, 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 Are you trying to see. cancel Justinian? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> are you okay, are you going to search his I'm old trying, tweets? I'm trying to anti-cancel well, well, yeah, Justinian. If you're going to talk about Justinian being canceled, make sure to put on your really gravelly AM radio voice. <laughs> well, I'll cancel culture. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm going there. So, well, okay. So, but, 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 but no, you, you guys know the question. You, mm-hmm. you, you guys understand the question. If we bring this into modern entity, we have to look at when we look in the hindsight, when we look in the 2020 hindsight of history, we have to understand that there are men that can do very, very, very great things. Yeah, the capital G great man theory. And it's and also be very, very, very capital G flawed. Mm-hmm. It's I, I I think and yeah. this does this, this isn't just 200 years of history. This is going back. 14 centuries. It's yeah. almost like humans are uh, yeah. d- deeply complex individuals. Yeah, I, I think we can't assign a title to to uh, Justinian. However, we are going to continue this conversation, but we're not going to do it here. We're going to do it with our Series Roundup Roundtable, which is going to be available for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, that's going to continue. It'll be out soon. We're going to record it not tonight, but probably the next time we all get together. However, that'll be ready by the time... the the final episode of this series is out. So, um, yeah, like I said, it was a four-parter. Thank you so much for hanging in there, everybody. It was a long slog. Um, Because this was such a big series, um, I actually pulled some numbers before we leave. Uh, Here's the final... So here's some final tallies. Uh, From the start of research to the final recording... After recording the final episode, 16 weeks and four days. Uh, there were 64 pages of typed script notes. That's mostly single-spaced. 1,865 pages of written research material. That's not counting the online stuff. I used 114 post-it notes. Uh, combined, we drank 26 beers while recording these episodes. Those are rookie numbers, man. Those are rookie <laughs> Gotta numbers. Bring those up. Gotta bring those up. Uh, bring those up. There was a total of 10 mid-episode pee breaks. Five of them were by Mike. We're worried about you, buddy. None of them were by me. I've got a bladder. Of steel. Remember, everybody, prostate health is important. Right. Yeah, I, I know that I've got a ticking clock, you're, so I'm just yeah. I'm stretching those pee breaks as long age, as I can. You're of an age, Michael. Don't I'm, worry. I'm, I'm hitting the half century. Yeah. Mark, yeah, like, so, listen, yeah, you got it. Look, listen, I mean, fellas, if I, I, I'm part of those 26 beers too, yeah. so. it, it's coming for all of us. Yeah. And um, <laughs> enjoy yeah. those road trips while you can. Ten episode uh, mid episode pee breaks, five mid episode pee breaks by Mike, and one incident of a dog biting the narrator's testicles mid narration. He's actually asleep which, right now. By so the, it's, it's which, by the way, one nobody, time. nobody's won the goal, have they? Uh, I don't that know. That episode hasn't been released yet. So at at print at time of recording, at time of record, that episode is yeah. not out yet. We're gonna we're gonna play the waiting game there. We gotta I, give people time. We gotta I, let them wait. Yeah, I mean the episode with the biting in question is yes, but the, but the announcement of the contest. Uh, because we we shotgunned the records, yes. so yes. Um, so yeah, Chris, if people want to find us, where can they do it? If you want to join us, all you have to do is email us at trrpod at gmail If you have anything you'd like to either add or subtract from the conversation, anything you might you know we might have gotten wrong, uh, anything you want to fact check us on, please hit us up there. Yep. You can episode us- ideas, requests, anything like yeah, that. Yeah, anything. Nudes, 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 fire nudes, and pubes. I, those will those will be forwarded immediately to the uh, Bob Crane Sex Call Webmaster. Hogan. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. There is at, one Bob Crane, and I am his prophet. <laughs> you follow us on Twitter at Podcast DRR. You can follow us on Instagram at TRRPod. 
You can find us on Facebook just by looking up Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And you can join our cult at bobcranesexcult.com. Yes. And if you'd like to get access to that roundtable wrap-up where the four of us kind of do get into the meat and potatoes of our research process, get into some stuff we didn't get to talk about in the episodes, uh, you can find that on Patreon. You can become a Patreon member at www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Or for uh, as much as ten thousand dollars a month, we're still waiting on who wants to be our first Grand Poobah subscriber. Um, yeah, you I'm, get I'm just excited about which yeah. which Red Lobster we're going to go to. <laughs> well, I mean, we get to pick. Yeah, according exactly. to the Bylaws. Yeah, but uh, yes, for you'll get access to all that material. You get early uh, episode access, and of course, uh, we are also now looking for advertisers. So if in the community out there you have a, uh, a side hustle, an Etsy shop, anything, a business that you're working for, a friend's business that you want to help get word out there, please do get in contact with us um, through our email, and we would love to uh, help you promote uh, the stuff that's out there. Whatever. Especially, well, especially I, I, well, people well, helping well, people, To give man. you an example, I, I am trying to get a, a merking company going on, mm-hmm. but everybody I talk to completely understaffed. Bob Crane's pubic manes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <damn> holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> I still got it, baby. <sighs> so, yes, um, like I said, every cent we take in via Patreon goes right back into the production of the show. Uh, thank Just you wait for, till it doesn't, yeah. man. That's going to be sweet. <laughs> oh, thank you that's for... That's uh, going to be sweet. Uh, I just can't wait till we have to fill out tax forms for it. Right. So... Yes, thank you everybody who has subscribed. Uh, we're hoping you're enjoying the the extra material that we're putting out, and uh, yeah, we're just kind of tempting you with that. If you haven't subscribed, and if you yet. are a patron, you'll be listening yeah. to this well before everybody. Else. Yes, you will. Exactly. So yeah, that's gonna do it for today. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Our next episode, I'm excited because we are going back to our roots. This is not gonna be a four parter slog. This is gonna be a one off. But uh, yeah, we're going back to the golden age of piracy. We're looking at the story of Bartholomew Roberts. And I'm excited about that one. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, finally get a pirate again, man. Yeah. It's, it's been uh, yeah. like a year. It has. <laughs> it has. Well, it hasn't been a year if you uh if you well if you're a patriot. Doesn't count. If you're, doesn't count. Yeah. Well <laughs> doesn't count. Big old asterisk. Doesn't count. Well, well I was just saying, I was your, just gonna even say your expired driver's license was fine. J- <laughs> so I was I was actually just going to suggest that it it, it does count because uh, anybody that's on Patreon has already got Kyle and I's take on Charlestown Harbor. So. Oh, yeah. We did have a throwback. Yep. Yeah. And we're going to keep doing those, yeah, too. Exactly. But that was more about Mercury than anything. Yeah, let's yeah, be honest. Exactly. That, that's well, what yeah, we really true. wanted to talk it's about. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to. I will never look at Dairy Queen spoons yeah. the same. Uh, it looks just so, like it, man. It's bothersome. Yeah, I'm going bothersome. Bothersome. to miss Justinian in a way. I really am. It's, an, it's an interesting thing. Well, because there's so many threads to go down. It's, I loved it. I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun and a lot of not fun. Honestly, it felt like archaeology. There was a lot of, poop. and I love archaeology. You know, it felt like archaeology. It felt like we were, yeah. we were Dr. Alan Grant yeah. down there, just like brushing a little bit of that's, dust away from a dinosaur, yeah, but that's, that's, and then punking the shit out of that smart ass. Kyle, head. do you want to be pedantic or me? I, Paleontology, dude. Yeah, uh, yeah. Archaeology is Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones, bro. That's right. So I wanted to be a paleontologist, and I was like, he was 17. also mean to kids. Found out they yeah. don't make money, oh. and then I took oh, a no, career that make doesn't money. make money. So and, I should have just been a paleontologist. And, and, and honestly, I just got to say that I'm not going to miss it because there's a whole lot of poop. <laughs> there, there was a, a great lot of deal of poop. 
A lot of poopy death. Like more poop than I want. Yeah, a lot of poopy death. Not yeah. a lot of poopy death when we're going to talk about about uh, Bart Roberts next time. So uh, well, you know, make what? a nice break. If there is, we'll just gloss over. It. You know what? Get in okay. touch with us if you want more episodes about poopy death. There's plenty of it out there. I'm sure we can find some. I don't want to read those emails. Our 17 part series on cholera. <laughs> <laughs> Where we Send go one to- by one through all the Oregon Trail diseases. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you so much again for hanging in. Uh, from me, Rob North, Chris Miller, Michael Ernett, Kyle Graper. We're signing off for what now. Vinny? He's sleeping. Uh, Vinny Gumbats down on the floor. Oh, the old Vinny nut biter. Donuts. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll catch you next time, everybody. Thank you. Hold fast. Bye now. Bye now.